Yeah, well, today we start a brand new series about worship. You know, we attend worship, we watch worship, we put on worship services, but I don't know that we've given enough thought about worship. What is it? How do you do it? Does it really matter? And over the next four weeks, that's what we're going to talk about as we lead up to a brand new school year. We're going back to the heart of worship. Maybe you've heard the old story about a kid after a service in the lobby, and he looks up, and there's this big memorial plaque on the wall with names engraved, and, and he asks his dad, what's, what's that on the wall? And his dad said, well, those are the names of people who died in the service. And a little boy says, which service, the 930 or 11? Yeah. Right, it's an old, old story, but uh, we're going to see for the people of God in the Bible, worship was more of a life and death issue than we might believe. And I want to tell you how important this is. You can trace this throughout the Bible for the people of God. Whenever they got off track on worship, whenever they forgot about the essential purpose of worship, you can trace this in the Bible, but also through modern times. Whenever this happens, uh, it leads to dis, uh, conflict and division in the body. It leads to loss of spiritual passion. It leads to a misunderstanding about the nature of God. It leads to cold hearts, hard spirits, and the, and the death of community. Worship really does matter. So we're gonna roll up our sleeves and go to the school of worship. And our aim is to become better worshipers of our God. You ready to sign on for that? If you're ready to sign on, say yes. yes. All right. I wanna tell you a little about this series and kind of where we're going. Uh, we're gonna talk about worship in general today, although specifically today and in one of the other sermons, we'll talk about what happens when we come together on a Sunday morning like this or sometimes we call it corporate worship. Corporate from the Latin word corpus, meaning body, worshiping together as a body. And historically and biblically and theologically, God's people always gather together to worship. Now some of you are thinking, yeah, but can I worship God when I'm all by myself, when nobody else is around? Yes, you can, and I hope you do. And that's what we're gonna talk about next week, the discipline of private worship when it's just you and God. And you really need both. We need these corporate worship with other people, and we need private worship when it's just us and God. There are certain things that happen when we are gathered together that do not happen when you're all by yourself. Jesus said, where two or more are gathered, there I am in their, in their midst. And some people wonder, is Jesus putting a quota system on this? Two or more, what's up with that? Isn't God everywhere all the time, no matter where I am? Uh, yes, God is everywhere all the time, no matter where you are, but God is uniquely present in his gathered people. And there are things that happen when his people are gathered that do not happen when we are separated. By the same token, there are things that happen when it's just you and God that don't happen when you're with a bunch of other people. So you need both corporate worship and private worship. And some of you are already ahead of me and you're wondering, yeah, but isn't worship even bigger than just corporate worship or private worship? Isn't worship everything? It couldn't work be properly understood as worship? And couldn't recreation also be considered worship? And yes, it can. In our final installment of the series, we'll talk about worship as a way of life. So uh, each week, we'll lift up one aspect of worship, and I hope you'll hear all four messages, because if you grab hold of one aspect of worship and miss the others, you are likely to miss the kind of worship that God wants for you 
and from you. So today we start with what worship is and ways that we can easily get off track. And we're going to look at some examples or some snapshots of worship uh, from the scriptures. And the first passage is our main passage of the day, and it's found in the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 19. God has delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. You know this story. They cross the Red Sea, and no sooner do they get to the other side when the prophet Miriam picks up a tambourine, and she begins to sing and play, and that is the first mention of corporate worship for the people of God. Exodus chapter 15 is where it all began. Then later, uh, Moses is going to lead God's people out of their camp into the presence of God to meet God on Mount Sinai, and that's where we'll pick up the story in chapter 19. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word this morning from Exodus 19. I'll read verse 10 through 12 and then skip a little bit and read 16 through 19. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, we pray that you would now be our teacher and our guide. May the words I speak be the words you want spoken. May the words we hear be what you want heard. May we live to your glory, we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Let's start with what is worship. I heard Jimmy say a few minutes ago that worship is a response. It's a response to God for who God is and what God has done. I I like that a lot. The word itself, the English word worship, is derived from the old English word worthship, meaning worthiness or to give worth to something. In worship, we declare God's worthiness, his holiness, his majesty, which means really the the main point I want to make today is that worship at its heart is God-centered. We are here to praise God. Now, people sometimes say things like, I I got a lot out of worship today, or conversely, they say, I didn't get much out of worship today, and that's okay, but by definition, worship is not about what you and I get out of it. Worship is about what we give, not what we get. Soren Kierkegaard, the 18th century writer and philosopher, uh, compared worship to a theater And it's not a hard illustration to make because most worship buildings look a little like theaters. There's a place where people sit, like an audience, and there's a stage. But Kierkegaard turned it around, and he said, in the theater of worship, 
God is the audience. God is the only audience. And the people that sit where you sit now, uh, you, you are the performers in this theater of worship. And you perform and sing for an audience of one, for the pleasure of our God. And then what about the people up here on the stage? What about the musicians and the pastors and the prayers? Kierkegaard said they are the prompters in the theater. They prompt the people to worship God. Worship is about God. It is not about us. Now, of course, you know that when you do the right thing, you get some blessing in return. Whenever you give, you receive. When you bless somebody else, you receive blessing. So worship is good for your soul because you were wired to do this. But by definition, worship is holy entirely for God. It's not for us. It's not about getting our needs met. It's not about our preferred style. It's not about our personal tastes. In worship, we gather and we encounter the presence of the living God and we declare his greatness and his goodness and his glory with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's very easy for us to get off track It's actually very easy to wander off unintentionally. And we see this again throughout the Bible, how the people of God continuously would get off track or forget that God is at the center of worship. And a lot of writers have written about these uh, tendencies. And I want to acknowledge Tim Keller and John Ortberg as two writers who have helped me identify and articulate some of these worship wanderings. And the time that remains, I'd like to pose three self-reflective questions that you can ask of yourself uh, to keep you from worship wanderings. Three questions to ask yourself uh, that address some of the most common types of worship wanderings. And the first question is this. Is my worship too casual? If you're using the Ward Church app for notes, casual is the fill in the blank. Is my worship too casual? And by casual, I do not mean style of clothing or style of music. I mean, do we take worship too lightly? Do we really understand what's going on when we gather together for worship? Now, some traditions, I think, do better at this. I was talking to one of our high school students in our church about uh, maybe a class we could do sometime where we take people to different churches on a Sunday morning. Now, someone else would have to lead that class than me because I, I have a gig on Sunday morning. But, you know, we'd, we'd go, you know, to, a, to an Orthodox church where things are kind of high and holy and we'd be reminded of the, the holiness of God, the majesty of God, the transcendence of God. And then we go to a Baptist church, and I'm reminded that Jesus is my friend. Not only is he transcendent, but he is imminent. Not only is he holy and above, but he's near. And then we go to a a, a Pentecostal charismatic church where I'm reminded that, that God is alive right now, that the Holy Spirit is active, and that our God is a miracle working God. And then we go to a Presbyterian church where we'll be reminded. Yeah, I, I couldn't think of anything either. Um, maybe we're reminded about the, the, the wisdom of God, and that I can love God with my mind as well as my heart and soul. Maybe that would be the tradition, uh, something that my tradition could, could offer. Uh, I think some traditions might do a better job. I wonder if a whole, if we Protestants haven't gotten too casual or taken worship too lightly. Did you notice in Exodus 19 that we read earlier, when the people were told they were going to meet God, They were very excited, and they were scared to death. 
Did you notice uh, what we read here? Um, let's look at it again. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. And everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Can you imagine that moment? They had prepared for three days for this. They're terrified. Moses leads them out. They're trembling. They're not sure what's going to happen. They're not sure they're going to survive this. One thing they are not is bored. No one in the group that day said, oh, you know, God descending the mountain. Oh, I've seen this a thousand times before. They didn't say that. Notice they didn't try to critique or control the encounter with God. Uh, No one said, you know, violently shaking mountains really aren't for me. I like worship where there's no movement at all. You know, nobody said that. Uh, Nobody said all that smoke and mystery is too formal for me. I like worship that's more upbeat and casual. They didn't say that. No one said, I liked it better when Miriam played the tambourine. Remember the tambourine? They had to bring back the tambourine. They didn't say those things, I don't think, friends. I think that the people were filled with awe and wonder, and they trembled and hoped and feared because right there in the middle of nowhere, before a band of ex-slaves, there is suddenly the presence of the living God. And there was awe and mystery and life. And don't you want more of those moments? I wonder if part of the reason we don't experience God more in worship is because we don't expect to experience God in worship. And so worship becomes just this other activity, quite optional, designed by humans for humans, and we aren't alert to the presence of God in our midst. Friends, when we come here, we come into the presence of the God of the mountain. Yes, that God is present everywhere, but when we come here, we open ourselves wide up to the presence of God, the God who made the the heavens and the earth, the God who shook the mountains and roared like thunder the God who holds your life and mine in the palm of his hand, the God who sent his son as the savior of the world, the God of the mountain, the God of the cross. And he's right here right now, just as he was on that mountain in all of his mystery and awesomeness and righteousness. So when we gather here, let there be no casual worship. When we gather together, I want to encourage you to invest yourself in every moment that we're together. The psalmist says this, uh, the psalmist says, make his praise glorious, and that's your job, and that's my job to make his praise glorious. So don't wait for something up here to grab your heart. You direct your heart toward God. Don't wait for your favorite part of the worship service. Say to God, God, I'm fully present. I'm fully available. I'm fully responding. I'm focused on you every moment. So if you've gotten casual in your worship, renew your commitment to give God your best effort and your best attention. Are you in for that? Say yes. Yes. Thanks. It it means less when I've got to tell you, but that's okay. (laughs) The second question I'd like you to consider asking yourself is, is this one. Is my worship too unbalanced? Has it gotten too narrow or too rigid over time? The Bible records an exchange between Jesus and a Samaritan woman at a well in John chapter 9. And at the end of the conversation, the woman says, well, where's the right place to worship God? Is it where we Samaritans worship? They worship on a mountain called Gerizim. 
Or is it uh, where you Jews worship on a mountain where the temple is? Where's the right place? What's the right way to, to do this? And this is, this is the exchange at that part of the conversation. Uh, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. She's talking to Jesus. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus says, it's not this mountain or that mountain. It's not this location or that location. It's bigger than that. The Father is looking for worshipers who will worship him in, and then there's two words. The Father is looking for worshipers who will worship him in traditional and contemporary. That's right. Uh, no, spirit and truth no matter what style of music you like. Spirit and truth, it's kind of a balance here. Um, I saw an article years ago in Leadership Magazine, it's a publication for pastors where an author was writing about this balance of worship, spirit and truth, and this writer compared it to the characters from The Wizard of Oz. Hang with me for a minute. Um, it makes sense. The writer is describing this really emotional worship that, that many uh, churches have, this real emotional worship, and the writer says this, such worship is often shallow, sometimes artificial, and rarely reflective. Little attention is given to worshiping with the mind. It produces people who have little depth or rootedness. They may develop a zeal for God, but, according, uh, but not according to knowledge, Romans 10.2. They become worship junkies, searching for whichever church can supply the best rush. This is scarecrow worship. It would be better if it only had a brain. But then he goes on. On the other hand, some churches focus keenly on cognitive correctness. They recite great creeds, distribute reams of exegetical information, craft careful prayers ahead of time, and yet the heart and spirit are not seized with the wonder and passion that characterizes those in Scripture who must fall on their faces when they encounter the living God. No one is ever so moved that she actually moves. Those who attend such services may be competent to spot theological error, but the unspoken truth is they're also a little bored. Their worship is dry. It does not connect with their deepest hurts and desires. Rarely does it generate awe or healing and never rousheous joy. This is tin man worship if it only had a heart. We want to worship God with brain and heart, in spirit and in truth. And my guess is that every person here leans toward spirit or toward truth. You have a natural inclination there are truth people and there are spirit people, which is why some of you consider all the music in a worship service is kind of the preamble, it's kind of the, the pre-show before the sermon, which is the main event. And others of you see the music and the singing and the prayers as the main event. That's when we're worshiping, that's when we're ascribing worth to God. And I just want to say it's, it's all the main event. Pastors, preachers often have a beef with worship leaders when they say, we're, you know, we're going to close our worship now and go to the sermon. 
right? The sermon is part of worship. It's all part of our encounter with God. Uh, this goes with the age-old debate between hymns versus choruses, and some of you have written letters to me about this recently, um, saying, you know, I don't like the songs that repeat all the time, I love you, I love you, I love you. I, I, I prefer, uh, you know, the, 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 the old hymns that have the great, rich theology. And, um, and, I, and I get where you're coming from, and theology really is important in songs, especially because we know, there's a fair amount of research to show that people learn doctrine from songs, not sermons. Which if you're a sermon giver, kind of a bummer. But it makes sense. You know, the, the music gets into your memory, and we know those things. We learn from songs, not sermons. Um, we teach people doctrine through the music, so that's really important. But when you think about our definition of worship, the primary reason we gather is not to teach people doctrine. And if it's, if it's really for God, God doesn't need us to teach him doctrine. God already knows all about himself, which is why some worship leaders prefer to write songs that are more love songs to God. We don't need to teach God doctrine. Um, now, we need both. I was on a track for a while. I heard people say we should only sing lyrics that are absolutely true. And so if a song says, I will, I will hang on to you, God, forever, we know that's not really true because I'm not going to do that. I'm going to... I'm going to blow it. So we flip the songs to say, God will hang on to me forever. You know, say only things that are absolutely true. But then I think about this. If I were going to write my wife, Angie, a, a love song, I, I could write the factual kind, you know, and, and that song would go like this. Oh, Angie, we've been married 29 years. We have three children. Their social security numbers are... And I know that you love me. Would you like that song? Or would you prefer a song that says, Oh, Angie, when I look into your eyes, I am lost. I'm undone. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. I'm not making a case for hymns versus choruses. I'm saying we need them both. And part of the reason we need good doctrine and songs is because the more you know about God, the more you'll be inspired to worship this God. And the less you know about God, the less you're going to want to worship this God. The ideal worship service for me has songs with rich theology and then these heartfelt love songs to our God. What I think Jesus is saying to the woman at, at, the, at the well is that it's not this mountain or that mountain. It's not this style or that style. It's not hymns or choruses. It's not theology or poetry. The Father is looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. So let us commit together that we will worship and respond to the fullness of God, to his holiness, his righteousness, his passion, his justice, his honor, his goodness, his tenderness, his love, and his joy. We will respond to the fullness of God with all the resources that are at our disposal, our mind, our heart, our voices, our music, our, our bodies, our arts, our, our, the proclaimed word, the spoken word, prayer, our response. We will break out of our unbalanced worship and worship God in fullness. Are you in for that? The last question I want you to consider asking yourself is this one. Is my worship too disconnected from the rest of my life? 
This may be the most dangerous situation of all, and the prophets speak a lot to this, and we're going to do a whole series on the prophets later this fall. But look at the sample from the prophet Isaiah. God says through the prophet Isaiah to the people, stop bringing me meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me, God says. I'm weary of burying them. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. God's saying, you have all these services and all these meetings, and you keep bringing me offerings, but you're not honoring me with your life. Your words and your actions are disconnected. And Isaiah comes back to this. Isaiah 29, uh, he says this again. Uh, The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Let me leave that up for a minute. I'll, I'll come back to that in just a moment. Right? Worship is only meaningful when it's a genuine reflection of my heart. Do we think God's going to say, well, those people, they're making lots of serious commitments down there, but they're all caught up in the emotion of it, and I'm not going to hold them to it. <laughs> we sing songs like we did today with these lyrics, we live for you, and then we go out and live for ourselves. We sing songs like we did today, lead me in love to those around me, but then we ignore the promptings of the Spirit, or we live with apathy or hatred toward other people. And friends, when that happens, it damages your heart. It inoculates you against words. And words lose their power to shape you. So I want to ask you to consider, are you honoring God with words when the truth is your life is far away? And if there's a gap between your worship and your life, would you be willing to have a conversation with God about that? Now, I want to leave you with some good news. Worship is for imperfect people, and there's going to be a gap between our intent and our actions, and uh, that's okay. Worship is for sinners. You don't need to have your act together before you worship. You don't even need to fully believe before you worship. You can bring whatever you've got, respond to what you know about God. In fact, worship is coming to God and saying, I'm in awe of who you are because I know what I am. The amazing thing about God in the verse we just read in Isaiah says, you know, these people come to me with their mouths uh, and their lips, but their actions don't honor me. It's detestable. It's terrible. And then there's this word, therefore. And what do you think is going to follow the therefore? These people, they, they, they honor me with their words, but they don't honor me with their lives. Therefore, I will smite them. Therefore, I'm going to punish them. But this is what follows the therefore. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. What a good God. The people are so messed up, and I will astound them with wonder upon wonder. That's what God does, wonder upon wonder upon wonder, and he sends his son as savior of the world. Our God is worthy to be worshiped. And when we get together next time, we're going to worship God with everything we've got. 
Will you pray with me now from wherever you are? Well, God, we thank you that you are worthy of all praise. We confess that we are but novices at worshiping you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Our worship is prone to wander, prone to get off track, and prone to become self-centered. And yet you love us and claim us as your own. You promise to be our God in all situations, and you astound us with wonder upon wonder upon wonder. We praise you today for your majesty and glory and justice and compassion and loving kindness and power. To you be all glory, honor, and praise in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.